welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. I want to take a, a, a time tonight to just uh, step back from the book of Judges to talk about the book of Judges and make sure that we're crystal clear on an issue. And that's the issue of warfare and war as it relates to how, it, how we need to be living out the Christian life in the year 2019. So if you have a Bible, I want to ask you to turn to the 67th Psalm, Psalm 67. And let let me just speak to you a few minutes tonight on spiritual warfare and answer some questions and just bring some clarity and encourage you to have a crystal clear idea of who our enemy is and how we're supposed to be fighting this Christian war we talk so much about. Even this morning I was talking about spiritual warfare in the realm of Paul saying you were to be like good soldiers and stakete, standing fast, don't move, don't let the enemy have an inch. And so we have this constant, what I call a motif in the, the Bible of, of warfare, and we're, we're, taught, we're tying this into judges. So this is not moving away from judges, but it's to make sure everybody understands who we're supposed to be fighting and sometimes it's hard when you're in spiritual warfare to know uh, what, who the enemy is. And so um, we kind of experienced this when I was in Afghanistan. Uh, I served in Afghanistan uh, with the Air Force Reserves. And my job was to be a C-130 navigator. Um, and we were flying people and cargo, troops, Marines, Army, uh, all kind of things, just moving them into... The, the battlefield. That was what we did. We flew from point A to point B to point C to point D and then, you know, back to another place and we were just cargo um, aircraft. And sometimes we would fly into very dangerous locations because the C-130 has the capability to land on dirt strips. So it's a unique aircraft. It's a large aircraft, but it has the ability to land on dirt runways. So the Marines oftentimes would just literally carve out a, a, a strip for us a few thousand feet where they were in some kind of forward operating base in a very dangerous location, and we could fly in there. And the, It's an amazing aircraft because you can turn the props on the C-130. It has propellers on it, and you can turn them in such a way the air is actually blowing the backwards. You can actually back the airplane up in reverse and move it backwards. But when you turn those props like that, it's, it acts like a brake that you wouldn't believe. So you can stop on a dime. And you don't need hardly any space to take off or land. And it makes it a, a really amazing aircraft. And so we flew one mission into a place on the, on the Pakistani border with um, a bunch of Marines, which a lot of y'all would appreciate. And, we, and there was a Marine Ford operating location. And it was a very dangerous place. And when we went in there, we were on high alert. So we left the engines running. We did what's called an engine running offload, which means if we start coming under fire, we just unstrap everything and we take, we're on the end of the runway. We go down to the end of the runway, turn around and face back off for another takeoff. And so if, if we come under fire, we unlock the pallets that are in the back and we hit full power. And when we take, when we start rolling down the runway, the pallets slide out the back and we just drop them off for the Marines on the runway. Well, we, it was that kind of a place, and we carried our own troops called Ravens, who were Air Force airmen, and they had M16s. And we had our Ravens on board that were uh, very young guys. The guy that was on board, he, I was talking to him flying up. He was 18. He just graduated from high school, and he had a, an M16. 
And his job was to go out to a certain range in front of the aircraft, 100 feet, and create. And he would put orange cones up all around the airplane. There was a couple of them, one off the back, one off the front. And they'd put these cones up and create a circle of cones around the aircraft telling the local people, do not penetrate that cone. Don't get inside our circle. Because if you're inside our circle, then we consider you to be, uh, you know, attacking us. And the people inside the circle are friendly. And the pe- we just assumed everybody that's outside the circle is an enemy to be aware of. And sure enough, this one guy starts riding a bike down the runway, right down the middle of the runway. He was a local man. And you can't tell when they're local the way they dress. They didn't have uniforms. So you don't know if he's enemy or friendly. He had a backpack on his back. And, you know, the question is, you know, he's outside our circle and we know he's not a friendly. And fortunately, I was so scared that this guy wasn't going to understand what these cones were or he was going to try to penetrate the cones and just ride up to the airplane and detonate an IED or something like that. And, And our Raven was waving him off, but he didn't seem to understand. And at the last minute, this guy went around the outside of the cones and it was... It was really scary to watch because we didn't know what was going to happen. And I was thinking about, you know, the fact that everybody inside that circle we deemed to be friendly, but everybody outside that circle was an enemy. We didn't know who the enemies were. And sometimes I'm afraid as Christians and as, as the American evangelical church, we tend to treat people outside our circle as enemies. We, we, we look at people out there and we think, because you're not in our circle, we assume you're, you're unfriendly to us and you're an enemy. And that's, that's unchristian. And so that's what I want us to talk about tonight. I want us to look at the heart of God and say, God, what is your heart? And let us have your heart. And so that we know we're fighting the right battles. And the title of this sermon is Your Salvation Among All Nations. And it's taken from this psalm. Listen to Psalm 67. It says, Be gracious to us and bless us and cause, cause his face to shine upon us. Excuse me, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the nations, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. This is a Old Testament great commission. And and if you study this and meditate on it and you start to understand that God did not have any one set of people that he wanted to be excluded from heaven. In Psalm 67, 2 is God's heart. It says that your salvation would be known among all the nations. And so the question we have to, you know, tonight we have this psalm and we have, we, we see in verse 4 and 5 that God wants us to see nations sing and be glad and He wants to judge people upright and see His praise on the earth and, and then He wants to tell us that we're blessed so that other people may fear him, that other people may honor and respect him. And so in Christianity today, there's a lot of critics that are lost. They're not saved. 
They're, they're critical of Christianity. And oftentimes they have perceived our message as we are against you. And so what we need to do is make sure that we're not conveying the wrong message to the very people that God wants us to take the gospel to. And so we just need to go inside our heart and say, God, if there's attitudes in me that are unbiblical and unchristian, unchristlike, if I'm not reflecting Christ, if I'm not acting like Jesus, then I need you to show that to me and change that and convict me of my own sin, my own hatred of people and change that attitude in me. Seek out in my heart, you know, my attitudes and my toward other people. And we know in scriptures in many places, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. And in that context, the world is a, is a positive thing. It's, it's the people of the world. Second Peter 3.9 tells us the Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In fact, Second Peter 3 is saying God delays from the second coming of Christ, which will terminate people's opportunities to have salvation because he is not wishing that anyone, anyone would perish. And so that should be our heart. And God has a plan, and God has always had a plan. And we need to understand what God's plan is. His plan started with the fall of Adam and Eve. And his plan is to restore the relationship that's broken of people toward him so that we would be able to glorify him and praise him. And his plan was started again uh, with Israel. Israel was to be essentially what I would call a nation of model missionaries. They were to be the headquarters of God's kingdom in the old covenant. There is a misconception in, amongst many evangelicals. Hopefully it's not a misconception in your thinking, but it would be a misconception if you believe this, that God only wanted to save Israel in the Old Testament. That's not true. God wanted to save Israel first in order for them to come to understand who he was and then share this, the, the gospel message with the world to make my salvation known among all the nations to let the peoples praise you, O God. This psalm is an Old Testament great commission to go into all the nations and make disciples. And so if you were to believe that only Israel was God's intended recipients of salvation in the Old Testament, that would be a false theology. Many Christians think that Israel was saved by being good and following the laws and the Mosaic Covenant. That's false. They were saved by grace through faith. It has always been the same message. It's always been the same gospel. There's a tremendous amount of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so what we need to understand is that God is a missionary. And if God is a missionary, then we need to be missionaries. And I can't think of any missionary that you would uh, want to commission and charge and send out as an IMB missionary who hated people or hated certain types of people. We would expect them to have a loving heart for everybody. That's the heart of God. And God's desire is for people to find salvation and honor Him and give Him glory across eternity. The Jews were blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. To other people. That's God's plan. The Jews fundamentally failed at that and rejected their, their Messiah. And God then ended that old covenant with them and began, it was temporary. Now the permanent new covenant has been instituted and we're under that. And that has ushered in the age of the church. 
where the church is God's plan, and it's plan A and the only plan God has for the global spreading of the gospel message. So given God's missionary heart for global redemption, who and what are we supposed to be fighting? What did Paul mean? Paul said, Timothy, fight the good fight. And when I was growing up, I hated church, but there was one thing I liked about church other than snacks. And, um, and when I say getting out, I mean, I mean, excuse me, growing up, I meant as a child, not like two or three years ago. But uh, as a child, I didn't like church, okay? I didn't like church at all. To me, I mean, it was painfully uh, long and... I dreaded going, but there was one thing I liked about it, and it was this song we used to sing called Onward Christian Soldiers. And I remember always, I would always kind of sit up, and we played it a lot, I think, and it may have been RAs. I didn't go to church much, but I would go with some friends sometimes. But I love that song for two reasons. One is because when the, and Carol, when they would play the piano, it was like that staccato, that don't, don't, don't. It sounded like we were marching, like the piano was that staccato beat where it was like, like drums marching, and you're supposed to be like a marching kid. And the second reason I loved it as a little boy was it was finally talking about something cool, battles. You know, I was like, onward Christian soldiers marching on to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. And I was like, finally, something cool that I can understand. And it said, you know, um, no. It, what was the other verse? It said, uh, forward into battle, see his banner go. Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. And I thought it was a great song, but nobody ever explained to me what in the world does it mean. And so I want to explain the answer to that question. And I want to put it in very simple terms, and maybe this will help you. But also I want to clarify your thinking and my thinking relative to people we interact with every day and people that we, and the witness that we have as individuals. And the example we set for who Jesus is for the world that reads us as a Bible. So here's the answer to the question, uh, who and what are we supposed to be fighting as Christians? The answer is the devil, the flesh, and the world. And I'm going to explain what those mean. And if you want a verse that will help you, it's Ephesians um, chapter 2, and verse two, it's 1 through 3. That kind of walks through all three of these. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So we have this idea of the world in a negative sense. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil. He's called the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the influence that Satan has on people that are being disobedient, and then among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the, as the rest. So in that one text right there, those three verses, we can actually see that there are three enemies that we have, and we're going to, you know, oftentimes we say it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's kind of a little... Uh, saying of Christianese, let's walk, let's go through these, the devil, the flesh, and the world, because I really feel like, uh, first and foremost, I don't want to say the devil is the worst, but he probably is the, the, the biggest enemy we have. And so it, let me just say this, it's very important this church understands, the Bible teaches that Satan, the devil, is real. He's not a fairy tale, he's not a legend, I think you believe that, but I want everybody to believe that, and we need to 
to teach that because, again, it's that faithful passing on of truth to the next generation because so many people in surveys now that are, say, millennials, uh, younger than 40, are now saying things like that, you know, in questions like, do you believe in a literal devil? Many, many Christians in the churches will say, no, they don't, that they think it's probably just a, a metaphor in the Bible. Well, here we believe that, and I trust that you will understand the scriptures make it clear that the Bible, that the devil is a real being. He controls a number of demons. They're operating under um, his influence and for the destruction of the kingdom of God. And they, their primary way of, of a method of working is to attack God's word and to tempt people in the, with the, the lures of the flesh, that fleshly desire. Ephesians 6.12 is a critical verse in this area. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Let me read that again. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, i.e. humans, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so, again, the devil... Satan has a realm invisible to the eye, but very real in biblical terms, that is influencing the world and, and tempting both Christians and non-Christians, but with, for the purpose of spiritual darkness. And so I just want to give you some, some things to consider tonight about this, uh, other than the fact that um, we believe that it, Satan is real. Satan is real, but he's not to be seen as a match for God. Sometimes I think in, in Christianity, we're giving Satan too much authority and too much power. Satan is not divine. He, he is a created being. He is an angel created by God. Therefore, he is not to be seen as anywhere in the same league as God's power. God is, called, God is the Almighty. And it would be a false if your thinking was that Satan was almost as equal to and just slightly below God. That is a, a, a theology that's crept, in my opinion, into the American Christian church because of Star Wars. Because that's kind of what Star Wars teaches. Star, if you, and you may not care anything about Star Wars, but people younger than 45 or 50 are all into it. And know all the names of, you know, Jobak Kadidadu and Badojo and all these things like that. And so they can quote all this stuff to you. But what they're actually teaching in that movie series is, is, is a form of, um, of Buddhism where there's like these two forces in the universe of darkness and light and they're almost equal, if not equal. And they're in this, this competition and we don't know who's going to end up winning in, What's happened, I think, for many Christians is they've given Satan too much power because of stuff like that. And that is, again, a, a view that's not in the Bible. And, and Bailey very clearly articulated, we've already won the victory at the cross. There's, it's not like which side is going to win. We've got Satan is fighting from a position of defeat. And he knows uh, what the book of Revelation says. And so, again... What Satan needs to be understood as, he's outside, uh, I mean, he is not outside of time. He's in time. God is outside of time as an uncreated being. So we don't need to give Satan too much credit. A lot of Christians today think that Satan knows what's going to happen tomorrow. They think he can read your thoughts. 
They think that he is everywhere. Those are powers that have been attributed to Satan and the devil that are actually divine attributes and only afforded to God himself. Satan is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. So technically, it would be incorrect to say Satan is tempting me because that means you are probably the best Christian on the planet because he's there with you. He's actually technically not there with you, but more than likely has dispatched demons into your life if you, in fact, are encountering some kind of demonic influence. And I hope what I'm doing is de-elevating Satan's power. You know, so, yeah, we say and a lot of Christians will say, you know, Satan got all up in our church or Satan is up in my business. But unless you're winning 10 people a day to Christ, it's probably not Satan, you know. And so I would encourage you by that um, because you you want to be on his radar scope. But the bottom line is don't give too much power to Satan. And always remember First John chapter two, verse 14 says, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And stand on that promise. And so, uh, yes, he uses temptations, but I think oftentimes God is, uh, excuse me, the devil is not actually tempting us, but we are tempted by our own flesh, which is doing plenty of temptation for us. And so what is the flesh? Let me move to that. The flesh is that old nature. When you get saved, your sinful nature that's inside of you remains. And one of the great hopes that we have, and not like a hope so, but I'm looking forward to so hope, is the removal of that sin nature at, at the point when we get our glorified body and we have a body that is sinless and has no sin temptation. And we'll get that at the second coming of Christ. And we want to be, we look forward to that day where we're not tempted in the flesh to have a, a, a nature, a thought process inside, inside of us that is so tempted to do things that are unchristian. Paul struggled with this. If you read Romans 7, it's this great battle that's happening inside of Paul. He was in spiritual warfare against himself, his own flesh. Romans 7, verse 18, which you don't have on the, script, on the screen, but I just added it. It says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, and in the famous verse, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, it says, go back one verse. Oh, that is it. I may have, I may have given him the wrong verse. The verse, what I wanted to read it was in Galatians 5 where it says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. I think it's the verse right before that. The flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these in opposition to another. I think I may have said this before, but I was a youth pastor at Malville Baptist Church and we had a youth in there. He was a really kind of a, a smart guy, but he, want, he wanted, he liked coming to church, but he didn't want to stand out when he was at Hill County, you know, high school. And he told me one day, he, he said, you know, I feel like my life is a tug of war. When I come to church, I'm getting pulled one way. And when I leave church, I'm getting pulled the other way. And that was basically an explanation of spiritual warfare in the flesh. The flesh is not our literal flesh. This is not the flesh the Bible talks about. And that's important. And I want to just mention this because there are a lot of Christians, again, that have a false... They hear flesh. The flesh is where Paul says, there's nothing good in my flesh... 
And when there's a false theology that some Christians have that says, as a Christian, my spirit is clean, but my flesh is sinful. That is false. And what that is, and what that has done is caused people to have a feeling about their own body, that my body is sinful and my body is where sin resides and is dirty, but my soul or my spirit inside of me is clean. And that is an unbiblical view of the way your salvation works. The term flesh in the Bible is not referring to your body. That is actually, by the way, a a Greek philosophy that came into the church and really crept into the church in the first 100, 200 years after Christ. And it was based on Plato, and it's called Neoplatonic Dualism. It's, if you read Plato, and like my son, Forrest, is having to spend a lot of time reading these philosophers, that they believed the body was evil. That's why a lot of people in the early church didn't believe Jesus had a body. And they had to fight that heresy that Jesus had a physical body. So when we say flesh, what we mean is that old sin nature that's strong enough to drive us towards sin and bends us towards sin that remains inside of us. And I think in many cases, the devil, he doesn't have to give us too much help, if any, to drive us towards strong temptation. So one of the things we're really fighting constantly is not only demonic forces, but that old sin nature called the flesh. But then there's another one we're talking about, and that's the world. And the world is not the world as in John 3.16. For God to love the world is a world that's good. It's talking about people. What the world is here is like it would be if we were looking at 1 John 2, verse 15. 1 John 2, 15, if you have that, guys, up on the screen, says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So when we use the term the world in a negative sense, we're talking about ideas and we're talking about sinful ideas and sinful thinking. It is a system of thinking about the world that is fundamentally opposed to the gospel. And therefore, if you're unsaved... You would be in the world. You would be thinking under the the course of the world that Ephesians chapter 2 talked about where it said that we've been driven by the course of the world. And so kind of wrapping it up, the flesh is drawn to love the world and demonic forces amplify these temptations. Does that help? Let me say that again. The flesh is drawn to love the world and demonic forces amplify our temptations and it really boils down to the, the, how we are thinking. There's a battle for the mind. Romans 8 talks a lot about the battle for our mind. Look at Romans 8, verse 6 and following. It says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So our warfare is spiritual. It's not physical. Our warfare is against the demons, Satan, evil, the flesh, worldly ideas. And so how does that relate? I want to make sure that when we study the Bible, that we don't equate 
stories from the time of Judges and going back even to the conquest before Judges of, of Israel with Joshua and Moses, you know, how do we explain what happened there? And I just, I just want to give you a brief explanation to make sure because sometimes we don't understand how it was that they were waging war, but we're not supposed to be waging war. And what happened was God gave those nations an opportunity to hear the gospel. There are passages of scripture where it talks about the, the, for example, the Amorites have a sin that has not come to the fullness in Genesis 15 where, where God was talking with Abraham. But these nations are being judged at the point of the war with Israel. They're being judged and it was a unique tasking. The church does not have this task. We are not authorized in the same way, obviously. So here's what happened. God's grace had been extended to these countries by the the message that they had heard about Israel. When Israel came up out of Egypt, that story spread across the Middle East. And all of those nations heard the stories of how God supernaturally separated the Red Sea and brought them up out of Egypt. They heard about Yahweh. They heard about His laws. They heard about how He had conquered Pharaoh and had power to do miracles that were greater than the powers of the Egyptian gods. And these stories preceded uh, Israel coming into the land. And they also understood that the Jews saw God as their king and that if they were to come to that God, they would have to submit to that God as king. They would have to submit to his laws. So in that message, God provided them mercy Grace and salvation and an opportunity to escape from God's wrath. Rahab the Canaanite was an example of somebody that took that opportunity and she got out. Hallelujah. So the nations had the opportunities to leave, but they chose to reject God in favor of doing what they wanted to do and disagreeing with God about what sin is. They said that what we are doing is not sin. And we will not concede that you're king. And Jesus talked about that attitude when he was talking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 19. John, John 3, 19, the Lord was speaking. He said, this is the judgment of God, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. What I'm saying is, when the pagan nations heard, they had an opportunity. They knew their options and they refused salvation because they wanted to do life their own way and sin their own way. So the stories of war that are in the Old Testament are set within a... First of all, they're set within a context of grace. They're set within the context of literally decades and decades of opportunities for people to hear the the story of Yahweh in faith that comes, excuse me, salvation that comes through faith. So it was not an immediate uh, war that they struck up. And they were also afforded the opportunity to leave the land ahead of Israel's uh, invasion into the promised land. And God knew if, you, if, you, if we allow those nations to stay, you'll never become the missionaries that I want you to be for the whole world. That the greater good was to eliminate the temptation of those sexual pagan religions we've been talking about so that they wouldn't be constant temptations in the flesh 
and in the world and by Satan toward Israel. And sure enough, they failed to drive those nations out and they continually rode that cycle. The, the Ferris wheel of failure we've been talking about, which was predominantly sexual temp- sin they were struggling with that eventually led to their complete exile all the way to Babylon and then on to Persia, which finally broke them of, of, a, of that sort of religion. And so that's the answer to the question, who is our enemy? So let me just finish by saying who we know who the enemy is, but let's just make sure that we're crystal clear about who the enemy is not. And this is important. The enemy is not people. People are not our enemy. We may have people out there that see us as their enemies, Jesus said to pray for those that persecute you, pray for your enemies. But this is this is our Lord. He's going out and finding the worst sinners. And he's breaking all racial barriers. He's breaking all social customs. He's eating with prostitutes. He's seeking out people that are willing to come to him. You know, he said I came for the sick, not the well. And so as followers of Christ, we're called not to war against people, but to war against the real enemies. Our mission is to share the gospel while we war against Satan, our fleshly temptations in the world. And so that's important because we're going to go home tonight and tomorrow and this week. And what are we going to do? We're going to spend some time watching the news, aren't we? That's what we do. And... You know, I I want to encourage you to think about this and and just in bringing it home. Political parties that we disagree with are not our enemies. And we don't agree with them. And we're in groups that are living in a lifestyle that the Bible calls sin, that we call sin. We don't agree with their lifestyle, but the people themselves are not our enemies. They're the mission. Not to go to war against them, but to win them for Christ. And I know that's difficult for us to, to understand, but we can never lose a sense that the gospel is the only answer for the world. If we don't believe that, then we need to stop living out the Christian life. I believe the gospel is the good news that Jesus will restore anyone who comes to Him as Savior and Lord. And when you meet Jesus, everything changes Your mind changes. Your way of thinking changes. If we want to change the world, the answer to changing the world is not political parties and politicians and power and the military and all these things. The answer to changing the war is the gospel. And so that's our mission as a church, as the church universal, as the true um, universal evangelical church, and as individual followers of Christ, that's our mandate. And that's been really the message of Judges. The point, now I really want to drive home, and I'm not sure I've driven it home hard enough, is the human judges were not the answers to their needs. They needed a, a Savior who was more than a human. That's what we need. That's what sinners need. That's what people that we look at and think, how can they have these political views? They need Jesus. And the person that's supposed to reflect that to them is you. 
and me. And so we need to uh, realize we're not at war with people. We're not at war with liberals. We're not at war with conservatives. We're not at war with, with Republicans. We're not at war with Democrats. We're not at war with communities of lifestyles like the LGBTQ community. That's our mission, to share Christ with them, the love of Christ. That doesn't mean we agree with them, and we will always call sin what sin is, according as defined by God in God's holy word. But we're not to go to war against them. And if they hate us, we need to be praying for them. Are we praying for people? And one of the things we can begin to do is pray for people that we disagree with and pray for people to be saved. Not to just change, but to, to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. We're not responsible for people's answers. We're not responsible for how they answer the gospel message. We are only responsible for delivering a loving, gracious, kind message of the true gospel to them. The response is their responsibility. And we're fighting the good fight when we are sharing the gospel with lost people. And so the wrath that we deserved, we need to remember that there was a thin line between us and the people that are out there that we want to dislike and we want to disagree with. The worst sinner um, in the Bible was the Apostle Paul, he said. But I would disagree. I may be in that category with him. And when, when, when you call on Jesus, whoever you are, whosoever will, he immediately reaches down and snatches you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That's the power of the gospel. So the enemy is not people, it's lostness. We're waging war against lostness, not the lost. And I hope tonight that you will begin to ask God, does God help me to see people the way that you see people that your salvation would be made known among all the nations. May I be a part, Lord, of a, a, a gospel that's presented to people in love, just like if Jesus was doing it himself. Not, not telling people, you know, I agree with your lifestyle and I, that I don't think it matters, but telling people, I care about you, I love you, and I feel that this is destroying your life, and I love you and enough to tell you that there's an answer and the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal relationship with Him. And so I just want to encourage us to pray uh, before we leave tonight. And maybe God's spoken to you tonight. We could just enter a time of reflect, reflecting on our own life. Maybe who we've been trying to wage a war against. Maybe there's somebody that you feel like you're at war with personally. Maybe a, a person you work with. Maybe there's somebody that you're interacting with, and it seems like you're at war with them, and they would probably say, you're at war with them. Maybe it's time to declare a peace treaty and let them become your mission to share Christ with them, just in kindness. Maybe tonight you would pray, Lord, give me strength to be an accurate reflection of the gospel. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and play some music for us as we go into a time of prayer. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. 
Have a great day, and God bless.